Please turn together with me in your Bible first to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans 8, 13. Then we'll read two verses in Galatians, and then finally turn to the book of Ezekiel. First of all, Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. Then turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5:16 But I say walk by the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh and verse 25 If we live by the spirit by the spirit let us also walk and then turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. <coughs> we'll read verses 22 through 31. Ezekiel 36, beginning with verse 22. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord Jehovah, I do not this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord Jehovah, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep mine ordinances and do them and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will save you from all your uncleannesses 
and I will call for the grain and will multiply it and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field that you may receive no more the reproach of famine among the nations. Then shall you remember your evil ways and your doings that were not good and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Again, join me as we pray. <coughs> Our Father, we would pray that you would so sort out the matters of the truth which we are about to attempt to expound, that they may be felt in the deepest recesses of our hearts. O Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things in your law and in the gospel, and open our hearts and melt them before your presence, that we may live in the light of what we hear. Help this preacher give grace from heaven that what is done here would be acceptable in your sight, that what is said and what is thought may be good and right. O oh Lord, help us now as we come near to your word with our mouths wide open as a tender father who has pity upon his children. Come and feed us and help us and turn us in keeping with your holy covenant promises and pledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue this morning in the subject of the gift of the Holy Spirit. We have been considering many of the benefits that come upon the lives and in the lives of those in whom God the Spirit dwells. We have learned that the Holy Spirit of God dwells in the life and the heart of everyone who has put his faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. There are no Christians in whom the Holy Spirit does not dwell. And he dwells in all of God's people with certain wonderful benefits for which they are called upon to give manifold thanksgiving. The wonderful blessings which rest upon the head of the believer in Christ cry out for our highest energy in gratitude and praise. They recall or they call forth from us, as we saw last time, our deepest love for God. As the scripture says, we love because he first loved us. The Bible says that the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given to us and so accurately and typically reflected in the life of one in whom the Spirit dwells is the love of God, love for God and the love of God for God's people. But this generation of love and gratitude requires labor on our part, the exercise of habit in meditating on the works of Christ for us, in the giving of thanks, as the book of Colossians has told us, we are to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. We are to be about the business regularly of teaching and admonishing one another. We are to be singing with grace in our hearts, one to another. 
We are to do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are to be thankful. We are to be about giving thanks. Because it's a reasonable thing, is it not, that a child of God be giving thanks and live his life thankful. Is it not reasonable that those to whom salvation has come would be those who are marked by a spirit of gratitude? Even as we read in verse 31 of Ezekiel 36, Then you shall remember your evil ways and your doings that were not good. The first instance of mark of a man in whom the Spirit of God dwells is that he despises himself, because in whom the Spirit dwells, there's a new depth and height of knowledge of the, of the sin and the iniquity that had alienated him from God. There's nothing more crucial and more typical of saving grace and the presence of the Holy Spirit than a spirit and attitude of brokenness, humility, and gratitude. And where the Spirit is dwelling in the hearts of his people, you will find some degree of those mercies. Well, we've considered several of the benefits that come to the people of God by the Spirit of God, and they are enumerated as follows. First, we've seen that he gives comfort to those who are in affliction. He provides strength to the weak. He gives assurance to the doubting. He assists in our prayers, which is a blessed and wonderful benefit to the saints. He gives us instruction in the ways and works of Christ. He provides to us access to God in that he is the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. And further, he's the spirit of liberation who applies Christ to the saint in such a way that he is marked by freedom in his, in his thinking, in his acting, in his doing, in his words, because the, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. No more bondage to fear but the liberty of the sons of God marks those in whom the Spirit dwells. But today we continue in our consideration of these benefits that come upon us by the Spirit's indwelling by considering two more of the ten that I've listed. First of all, the Holy Spirit gives to those in whom he dwells the enablement to mortify sin. The enablement to mortify sin. And if time allows, we'll continue by considering the ninth benefit. He also grants and provides and produces in us unity with Christ and with his and our brethren. First of all, though, I want us to consider together this marvelous benefit and privilege that is given to us in whom the Spirit dwells, that of the enablement to mortify or to put to death our remaining sins. The texts that we have read have hinted at the life of a believer as one in whom are the marks of a laborious effort to walk in the Spirit because he lives in the Spirit. This morning I want us briefly to examine this enablement that is the possession of every true Christian to mortify sin. Now there are three aspects of this enablement that I want us to focus upon for your encouragement and your help. First of all, the enablement to mortify sin 
which is provided to the saint by the spirit of holiness, is an encouragement to the weak and the weary. I trust that this morning, you who profess Christ are laboring to get rid of your sins. I assume that you hate your sins. The things that the Spirit of God has brought to your mind about you, the things which have made you loathe yourself because of your sins which you've committed against God, the enlightenment of your heart to see yourself in a way that you did not see yourself before God saved you, I trust that has made you one that longs to be rid not of just some, but of all and of every aspect of sin as it finds itself in you. It is my assumption that a Christian this morning doesn't want to sin at all, ever, ever again. It is also my assumption that when you confess your sins and repent from them, it is your sincere desire and choice to beg of God that you never again commit them. And though many of you have grown weary in such praying because your life has been patterned by a habit of confessing sins, repeating them over and again, and because you, many of you have ceased to pray, Lord, let me not do this again, because you've given up hope, I want to encourage you, who may have grown weary in the work of killing your sin, or who may have grown weak or seen your weakness. Our Lord, in Matthew chapter 11, gives a promise, and I want you to see it in the Scripture. The focus of this promise is usually upon the outset of the Christian life. But in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 11, I believe we can find a promise that applies to every one of us throughout our life in Christ in this world. Verse 28 of Matthew 11 says, Our Lord speaking, Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now we have in the past seen in this text that the Lord is not saying that his yoke is easy and his burden is light because he is removing from his people the duty of obeying the law of God. On the contrary, our Lord has commanded us that we are to be perfect, even as our Father in heaven is perfect. He has commanded us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our souls with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And we're to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. No way the Lord could give such commandments and set such a standard upon his people and at the same time expect them to believe that the responsibility of obedience to God's law has been removed from them. His yoke is easy and his burden is light not because he has changed the duty of the believer and removed the obligation of obedience to the law of Christ. His yoke is easy and his burden is light 
because there's a feature in his provision under his mediatorship that is the benefit of everyone who comes to him. Those who come to Christ who are weary and weak and heavy laden and who labor under the load of their restless souls in sin are promised that he will give them rest from that weary labor. Not rest from the duty, but rest in the duty. There is a yoke that is placed upon the neck of every disciple of Christ. It is the yoke of Christ, however, not the yoke of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' yoke was a hypocritical yoke in which they provided certain rules, so many that you could hardly remember them, but provided no way to keep them. They made demands, but made no provision for the fulfillment of the demands. Our Lord has not done so. His yoke, which is in a, in a way similar to the rabbinical yoke of the Pharisees in that it is found in the law, is easy and light because his spirit is promised to dwell with his people. Turn back again to Ezekiel 36 and look with me at the significance of the coming of the spirit. Verse 27. Here's what happens when Christ puts his spirit into his people. Verse 27 says, And I will put my spirit within you. Now what's going to happen to a man in whom God has put his spirit? This is what's going to happen. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep mine ordinances and do them. When the Spirit comes, an enablement comes, and something changes. That which I could never have done in myself, which I still cannot do in myself, of a sudden I'm enabled to do. God will put His Spirit within His people, and they shall walk in His statutes and His ordinances and keep them. How can such a thing be? because it is the Holy Spirit of God given freely to, us, to his people in which we find great help and strength. I want to encourage you who labor under your sin. Some of you perhaps that wonder if some aspects of your inward habits and private sins will ever be diminished. I want to encourage you. In 1 Corinthians verse Chapter 10, verse 13, we are told, There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation make also the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. And then again in 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 3, the Apostle Paul, in this case, speaking primarily of the duty of the Christian ministry, but the principle applies to the saints' warfare in this world, says, 2 Corinthians 10.3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, 
but mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. The Bible is full of promises that to those in whom the Spirit dwells and who lay their hands or place their hands upon the weaponry of the Spirit of Christ, there is an enablement to get rid of sin and to mortify sin. The Spirit of God, in His blessed agency, is adapted to all the wants and the weaknesses of our nature. I want to read a passage from an old writer of a century ago, page 239 of James Buchanan's book on the work of the Holy Spirit. It is an animating and consoling thought that the promised grace of the Spirit has respect to every duty which we can be called to discharge and to every change that can possibly occur in the condition, the temptations, and the trials of his people. For whether we be called to fight against our corruptions, the Spirit is our sanctifier. Or to endure affliction, the Spirit is our comforter. Or to choose the path of duty in times of perplexity, the Spirit is our guide. Or to engage in prayer, the Spirit is the Spirit of grace and supplication. Or to cultivate any one of the graces of the Christian character, they are all the fruits of the Spirit. So that whatever may be our duty, and however formidable the difficulties by which we are surrounded, we can look up to God on the warrant of his own word for the aid of that good spirit who was promised to help our infirmities and who says to each of his people, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. My grace is sufficient for thee. I will perfect my strength in weakness. As your day is, so shall your strength be. Wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he will strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. You see what he's saying? That the work of the Holy Spirit in indwelling his people is designed by God to apply to every contingent need that comes upon us. Every duty that is ours, it is the Spirit's equipment to supply for us. Every change of our situation every challenge of temptation, the Spirit comes fully equipped and intent upon helping us overcome the difficulty. That's why no temptation takes you but such as is common to man and you may have a way of escape every time. There is no sin that you are not able to mortify by the Spirit dwelling within you. It is critical to understand that. It is greatly encouraging to know that. Now, dear brethren, I'm well aware of the danger of the statement. I trust we'll balance that later in the message. But I want you to understand something that very many do not understand. They have virtually given up the fight in some aspects of labor against sin because they did not know for sure they were equipped to deal with it 
and quit. I tell you, that's a sure path to ruin. Those encouraging passages in the scripture are there to keep us from giving up. In the book of Hebrews, not only are we given serious and sober warnings about what apostasy would mean, we're also giving, given great encouragement for our faith. There's an encouragement to the weary and the weak in this business of mortifying sin, and it's seen in the scriptural promise that God, the Spirit, will never depart from us, and that he lives in us in order to do that very thing, to enable us to put to death our sins. You're struggling with your attitude? What saint who has made any progress at all in the gospel has not discovered sins of the Spirit that he did not know he had? Many of us, when we first become Christians, are aware of certain types of sin. They're usually the ones in our generation that are condemned in the pulpit. And so we forsake those kinds of things. A lot of the externals, the habit of gambling, the cursing spirit, the blasphemous tongue and heart, the angry attitude that shows up in temper tantrums, the alcohol addiction or other kinds of drugs, the cigarette smoking, and all the things that signify men who are not in control of themselves. They see those things pretty readily, and often you see a man saved coming clean with those things, cold turkey breaking off of them, rejoicing in the deliverance. But alas, as he goes along with Christ, he begins to learn other things. In fact, in my experience, I believe that many are allowed to retain some of those externals in order for God to point out to them that there are deeper problems that they've not addressed. Sometimes when people get rid of their external sins, their sins of the flesh, they gain a presumption and an attitude that says, hey, I'm clean. And they don't address some very much more serious and deeper issues. But in God's work, he has promised to deal not only with the externals that please men, but also with the internals. Some of you still wonder when you're going to get rid of some of the bitterness, some of the resistance in your spirit, some of the anger. I tell you that the Spirit of God has come to equip you to do just that. You do not have to live that way the rest of your life. You are not bound to be utterly given over to any sin, any sin of the flesh or any sin of the spirit. Just as the Spirit of God enables men to lay aside the idol of sexual indulgence, to lay aside the idol of money, to lay aside the idol of various kinds of pleasure in this pleasure-oriented generation, he also enables saints to lay aside rotten attitudes that were built into them from their childhood. Some of you have been the way you are so long you can't imagine ever being free from it. And yet the Spirit of God is there to enable you to be free from the very things that are your greatest enemies and your strongest opponents. The Lord's strength is made perfect in your weakness. If that be true, and it is, then take the place where your enemy is the biggest and the strongest and the least possible to kill and get after him. Aim your little stones from the brook at the biggest representative of the enemy's camp and watch God work in that place. Some of you, because of your attitude, are working on the things you think you're more able to deal with and that's why you can hardly deal with anything. Because subtly underneath all that, you're assuming that the reason you can tackle this is because you have some strength in this area. And that's exactly opposite to mortifying sin by the Spirit. You're dependent on you 
your strength, your righteousness, and God resists it. But when you come to deal with the enemies of God and the enemies of your soul biblically by His Spirit, you begin to find strength you knew not of before. And it's a blessed thing to see God come and deal with something you never could handle yourself. That's what it's about. None of our sins we can handle ourselves. So with the enablement to mortify sin, as we have read in the text, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body you shall live, is an encouragement to the weak and the weary. But not only that, it also provides evidence for the doubtful. Very briefly, turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. There are those who doubt that they belong to Christ at all, who are prone to question their salvation, who tend to be afraid a lot, perhaps through lack of discipline in the, in the textual promises of the spirit of adoption, perhaps through a lack of discipline in meditating on the things of Christ and the gospel, perhaps because of a poor pulpit ministry, perhaps because of a generation of negative thinking ingrained in them, or whatever the reason, there are many saints who are doubtful of their condition. But in Galatians 5, verse 22, we're given a list of the things that accompany a life that has been dwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, let me, let me point out we're not preaching an exposition on this text, but let me point out that this is not a statement that is true of some Christians and not of others. This fruit of the Spirit is not an alternative form of Christianity. It's not an option. It's not present among some people and absent among others who are Christians. The contrast in this chapter is not between one type of believer and another type of believer. The contrast is between the works of the flesh by which people perish and the works of the Spirit in which people live. The contrast is in those who are saved and those who are not saved. And so in verse 22, having just listed all manner of the works of unrighteousness, the works of the flesh, we're given a list. I believe the singular fruit is appropriate because these all this ninefold representative list is in some way, in some degree, present in every believer. Not four of these out of the nine, not eight out of the nine, but these represent a plethora of the fruit of the Spirit to some degree in every Christian. What are they? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faith or faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Some of you wonder about your faith. But sometimes God provides for us evidence that we're his children by showing us great strides in areas of attitude and life that would utterly have been impossible apart from his spirit. We're not talking here just about the external, but a spirit that's dominated by love. A person who loves people he couldn't love if it weren't for the Spirit of Christ. He didn't love them before God saved him. He loves them now. He prays for people he didn't pray for and never thought to pray for before. A person whose life is not one of bitterness, but one characterized by joy. Love. Joy. 
peace, not a life ruled by temper and anger and restlessness and, and uh, an absence of tranquility and worry and spreading. No, something else has been injected and the fruit of the Spirit is peace and so forth and so on. Evidence to be seen by one who doubts his faith when he sees some of this coming out of his life, he gives God thanks that there's been a work of grace in him. But turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 6 for another very important text. Hebrews 6. And we'll read verses 9 through 12. But the material that goes just before verses 9 through 12 in Hebrews 6 is almost a horrifying passage. It's a trembling, uh, it produces trembling in anyone who reads with sensitivity. Because he describes from verse 4 on the condition of some who have had such experiences with God that on the outside it would be very difficult not to consider them Christians. They have had dealings with the very Holy Spirit himself. He says in verse 4, they were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe he's referring to having received the gift of the Spirit by virtue of genuine faith in Christ, but a partaking in the life and ministry of the Spirit to some degree beyond the ordinary, beyond the average, yet short of saving faith. Perhaps the convicting power of the Spirit in which they really do see their sin and really do know there's a hell and really do know that they're going there and are made to be troubled by this knowledge that's been imparted in the inner man by the Spirit. There are those that have taken that kind of protection. I'm not sure all the degree here, but I know that there's something that's frightening about how, how capable we are of great experience with God, and yet he goes down to describe them as those who fall away in verse 6. <clears throat> and this falling away puts them in a position that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance because of their re-crucifying of the Son of God afresh and holding him to an open shame. And so in that very dreadful and very frightening text is followed by verse 9. Now he's given this gospel exhortation and warning and threat as John Owen calls it, the gospel threatening to these people that he's writing to. But in verse 9 he says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. And we could spend lots of time on that phrase, though we thus speak. But he's saying, it's our duty to say what we just said. It is a part of gospel preaching to do what we just did and say it to believers. Yet, even though we just said it to you who are believers, to warn you who may be presumptuous, who may be headed down the trail of apostasy, though we've said what we just said and we don't take it back, nevertheless, we're persuaded better things of you. We don't retreat from what we've said. We must include that in a balanced message. However, we don't assume that these things are true of you to whom we write. We are persuaded better things of you. But notice the other phrase, and things that accompany salvation. In other words, the stuff that's been listed earlier apparently can be had without salvation. They don't necessarily accompany salvation. 
But we are persuaded, he says, better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Things that don't leave after they've been imparted. Things that rep are represented by the permanence of the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit in the fruit thereof. We are persuaded better things of you. And in verse 10, look what he says. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and the love which you showed toward his name in that you ministered unto the saints and still do minister. And he goes on to encourage them to grow more and more and abide in the same diligence of love to the name of God shown forth in the ministering to the saints under the fullness of hope even to the end that you be not sluggish but imitators of them who through faith and endurance inherit the promises. The writer of this section is encouraging them to continue on in what they've already demonstrated in their lives, but what's he saying when he says God's not unrighteous to forget? He's saying there is evidence in your lives that you are those who are saved. What's the evidence? You love the name of God. How do we know you love the name of God? You live in the business of ministering to the saints. You're preoccupied with the saints. Your life is characterized by communion with and ministry to the saints. That's evidence. God is not unrighteous to forget that. It's not as though God's going to let you into heaven because you did righteous deeds. It is because God knows that that is indicative of a righteous heart. God's not unrighteous to forget the evidence that proves that you are people whose lives accompany salvation. The point was that the enabling power of the Holy Spirit gives evidence for the doubtful that he's a child of God. It is the Holy Spirit that makes people able to minister to the saints when they used to minister to nobody but themselves. What a shameful thing it is for a church, typical of Corinth perhaps, and I think very typical of the, of the modern evangelical church. Every man does what is right in his own eyes and every man takes care of himself first. It is not indicative of love for God where saints do not minister one to another. It is a shame. I pray that there will be more and more evidence in this place of our loving one another and ministering one to another. But you see, you can't do that in the flesh. That's not something that you do. You just can't make yourself care about other people more than yourself. You are incapable of doing that. Only by the Spirit of God is such self-centeredness mortified and such love of the brethren cultivated. But the cultivation of these graces and the mortification of those sins, where they are present, give encouragement and evidence to believers that they really are children of God. Hereby we know that we love God if we love his children. First John tells us. Hereby we know we love the children of God if we love God. There's sort of a, 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 a converse argument that there's evidence on both hands, the ministry to the children of God, the love of God. Hereby we know. Some of you who are doubtful about your standing with Christ, look at how you're living. Look at who, whom you've been ministering to. 
Pay attention to what God has noticed, that your life has been caught up in ministering to the saints. Oh, you may not be the most flagrant Christian in the church, you may not be the one standing up in the front, you may not get the glory, but it's sure that God knows, and God is not unrighteous to forget. You see, he's writing to comfort and encourage some who've just been stung by the threat. He's saying, however, brethren, I have concrete evidence that what I just wrote doesn't apply to you. But what if there's not that concrete evidence? What if he could not say, you have labored and ministered to the saints? What if there was no evidence of such? What if all they do is show up at church, listen to sermons, and go home? What if that's the sum of their Christian life? He couldn't write this comfort to them. Verses 9 and 12 could not be addressed to any whom all they do is come to church and drink in the Word. Their whole perspective about what a church means is, I get fed there. When somebody asks, tell me about your church. Well, I get fed there. Brethren, there's a lot more to this than that. I grew up in the teenage generation, and in my younger 20s, people were trading churches right and left looking for the one that fed them. I don't get fed here. Well, that's, that's true. You've got to get fed. And you want to go somewhere where you're fed. Yeah, that's right. But brethren, if your perspective hasn't grown beyond that, there's very little encouragement for you in concrete evidence that you've gotten outside yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is love. First one listed. It means you're thinking of somebody besides your own sick little schedule. You're thinking of somebody beside your own agenda. You'd notice other people and you go out of your way to help them because they belong to Christ and you love Christ. Well, if you see that in yourself, be encouraged. There's evidence for your doubting heart. But we said in the third place, the enablement to mortify sin that is provided by the spirit of holiness indwelling us not only encourages the weak and the weary, and provides evidence for the doubtful. But it also elicits or provides elicitation to the presumptuous. That word, for the sake of alliteration, simply means provocation or provoking. The presumptuous is provoked by by the doctrine of the enablement of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 which we read says that if you live according to the flesh or after the flesh you must die. Not probably will die or most of you or some of you that live after the flesh could die. You must die if you live after the flesh. But if you by the Spirit mortify the deeds of the flesh you will live. And the text we just read in Hebrews 6, there are things that always accompany salvation. When salvation comes, these things come with it. If these things aren't there, there's no salvation. The biblical doctrine, what I'm saying is, some of you may presume that because you're here, you're a member of the church, You sit regularly in the stated meetings. You say you're a Christian. You are convinced you're a Christian. You may be presumptuous. The doctrine of the mortification of sin 
And the enablement to do so can help slay that presumption and can provoke the presumptuous to a self-analysis that may save his soul. You see, there is no excuse for a believer continuing subject to the raging, undiminished sin in any area of his life. There's no excuse. If there's one sin that rages undiminished for years in your life, you have no excuse as a Christian to say, well, it's a sin too big for me. Um, it just so happens that my dad was like this. And I'm not going to fight that too much. The Lord understands. I can't deal. No excuse because the Spirit is in you to enable you to mortify that. There's no excuse for the continuing of raging, undiminished sin of any sort in one who is indwelt by the Spirit. But further, there's no possibility of such. Not only is there no excuse for it, it ain't possible. The fruit of the Spirit is, not ought to be, is. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Dear friends, if to some degree you do not exercise self-control, you are not a believer in Christ, you are a presumer. Because everywhere the Spirit dwells, there is some measure of self-control. It's one of the reasons that we are concerned when we find ourselves going into any pleasure or activity as though we are wild animals, wanting to indulge every part of our appetite with unrestrained alacrity and no pretense to holding back anything. One of the marks of Christian manhood and womanhood is self-control and restraint. When you would normally do something, you don't. When you want to say something, you hold it in. You see, self-control in the, the fruit of the Spirit is a very encouraging thing to some of us. Because some of us have in our hearts desires to do things that are wrong. But, but God has provided that there's a place to deal with it. He's not saying that if there's any desire anywhere in you to do wrong, you're not a Christian. He's saying there ought to be some evidence of controlling that desire. Biting it back. And that's the fruit of the Spirit. You show me a man who cannot, who never shows evidence of ever restraining his appetite, either with food, drink, pleasure, TV, whatever, who simply cannot change his habits over a period of time, I'll question the evidence of his profession. I'll not declare he's not a Christian, but the scripture is clear. It is not possible to have raging, undiminished sin for a long period of time in a believer. It is impossible. Galatians 5 tells us that the Spirit wars against the flesh. It doesn't say ought to. It doesn't say you ought to. Though that's in another text, it says the Spirit does war against the flesh. Yes, it is true. The flesh wars against the Spirit. But don't stop there and say, well, see, Lord, I mean, I, you know, can't expect me. Look at the flesh is warring against the Spirit. And we have this view of the Spirit as though it's sort of lying over in a little hubble mass in the corner. Little diminished, weakling little Spirit. 
And here's this mighty flesh pummeling it and bludgeoning it and beating it down. And we stood back and said, oh, Lord, I wish that weren't so bad. But the biblical doctrine is twofold. Not only does your mighty flesh war against the spirit, but the almighty spirit is warring against the flesh. So you who may be presumptuous, you may think, well, I know I'm a Christian. I remember how I felt the day I believed. I know that their whole, my whole life is dominated by the sins of the past. I have no thought of giving them up. I, I don't even think it's use, worth giving them up. After all, I'm under grace. I warn you that where you are not about the business of putting to death actively, currently, any aspect of known sin in your life, you are questioning your profession at best, and you're walking in the way of the flesh, which leads to death every time. Regeneration, the Bible doctrine of the new birth, being born again, that's the spring, the mortification of sin, and sanctification is the stream. By that I simply mean that every time that spring bubbles up a lot of water, that water's got to run someplace. And it forms a stream and runs downhill. Everywhere there's a spring, there's a stream. Everywhere you've been born again, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Every time there's a man born of God, there's evidence of the mortification of sin. Where there's no evidence, there's no reason to claim the spring is there. Where the stream doesn't flow, you don't look for a spring. When you find a stream, you can follow it to its source and expect to find a fount someplace. When there's no stream, it never occurs to you to look for a fount. When you meet a person who has no evidence of self-control, the mortification of sin, you're not looking to see where he was saved. You don't ask, when did you get saved? You have no motivation to ask. You see not the obvious fruit of his salvation. The two are inseparably connected. Being born of God and living a life that shows the evidence of such born-again experience. Again, from Mr. Buchanan, he gets this issue, I think, clearly laid out, well worthy of our serious consideration that the regeneration of the Spirit and the progressive course of sanctification are inseparable because it serves to guard us against two widely different errors which it is to be feared are too prevalent in the present day. And this is a century ago. The first error is of an antinomian complexion. And you know what antinomian is. It means against the law of God. And consists not perhaps in the positive disbelief or denial of the duty which is incumbent on Christians. You see, there are those who agree that yes, Christians ought to obey the law of God. Thou shalt not kill, hate your brother. Thou shalt not commit adultery in the heart. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt honor the truth and defend it in every way and promote it. A lot of people would not deny the duty. But in the practical forgetfulness or habitual neglect of those considerations which should lead them to maintain a close and conscientious walk with God and often results in their turning the grace of God into licentiousness. The danger in this church is not that somebody's going to come out with a flagrant, blatant expression or confession that denies the duty of a Christian to do the law of God. 
The danger is in the practical habit of neglecting the conscientious oversight of the heart. So that practically I'm saying, well, it's not demanding of such duty because after all, grace is going to make it in the end. He told me the first point, encouragement to the weak. I'll wait back in my weakness and I'll let God do it. If God doesn't do it, surely I'm not to be afraid. Dear brethren, the, the, the terrible damning error of antinomianism in its practical expression is a real possibility in this place. turning the grace of God into licentiousness as if they were at liberty, listen, to continue in sin because grace abounds. Perhaps the most common and fatal form which this dangerous error assumes in modern times is the presumptuous confidence with which some professing Christians will venture to do what their consciences condemn or at least what they can with great difficulty reconcile even to their ideas of duty with the late feeling that if they sin, they have only to repent at some future time to ensure their forgiveness. A feeling which, wherever it exists, evinces an utter ignorance of the nature and source of genuine repentance, and an awful want of fear and reverence for God. Did you hear that? You see, here's the subtle danger. The presumptuous confidence with which some professing Christians will venture to do what their consciences condemn, or maybe their conscience doesn't condemn it, but it's greatly difficult to reconcile this deed even with their own ideas of duty. And they do that, they venture upon this conscience-violating behavior with the latent feeling, feeling, just a sort of a non-specific assumption, not well thought out particularly, not having searched the scriptures and come to a clear biblical doctrine of it, but because they want to feel it, they want to believe it, they're content to rest on that latent little feeling. Well, even if I sin, even if this thing is sin, there's always my knowledge of the grace of God so that sometime in the future, I, when I repent, God will forgive me. And you see what he says that reveals? An awful want of the fear and reverence of God on the one hand, and an utter ignorance of the nature and source of genuine repentance. If you think that a Christian can think that way, you don't understand what repentance is. You have not repented when you have said, forgive me for what I'm about to do. And you have not repented if you think that I'm about to do what's sin and later on I'll secure forgiveness. Repentance includes a loathing of the thing and a desperate attempt to avoid the thing at all costs. Where that's not there, true biblical repentance is not there. Don't think that I believe that I'm preaching to an audience to whom this is not applicable, at least to some degree if for no other reason than just to keep some of you from what you might about to be thinking. If you walk not in the Spirit, what evidence have you that you live in the Spirit? Is it not alike the command and the promise of Christ's gospel? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, for sin shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we 
sin because we're not under the law but under grace God forbid how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein that question in Romans chapter 6 has no positive answer how shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein the answer you shall not you cannot it is impossible if you are saved the principle of sin has been put to death and it will never again dominate your life and if you men or you women have decided to wave the peace flag in the face of any particular sin that your conscience is bugged about but you don't believe for whatever reason you are either willing or able to mortify or to rid yourself of you are already on a path of walking after the flesh which always leads to death It's not been unusual in this pulpit for you to hear that in every little sin is the seed of ultimate apostasy. When you plant that seed, it produces its fruit. You cannot keep planting the seed of sin and not grow the tree of hell. You can't do that. The nature of the case makes it so. And you cannot plant the seed of God without producing the fruit of righteousness. If there's no fruit of righteousness, don't lay claim in your presumption that you're a Christian. You see, there's that antinomian problem on the one hand, but on the other hand, he points out the other problem called formalism. If you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress, those, those dialogues of formalists are some of the most horrifying and enlightening passages in literature. If a new life will invariably follow the new birth, it is equally certain that there can be no real holiness of life without a thorough change of heart. This truth also, which is implied in the Apostle's words, stands directly opposite to another error of a different kind. I mean the error of those who are mere formalists, who suppose, hear me, that if their life be regular and decent, and above all, if they should abound in the outward acts of apparent morality, they need give themselves little concern about any spiritual change. Augustine was wont to say that the very virtues of such men were only splendid sins. And our Lord sanctions the same sentiment when referring to the alms and the prayers and the fastings of Matthew 6 and the Pharisees were done from an impure and unhallowed motive. He declares that however applauded by men, they were utterly unacceptable to God. You see, it's possible that you can rid yourself of all those bad habits and get into the church and do everything that is asked of you in the church and minister to the poor and minister to the saints with a wrong motive. There are those in the Christian world who give to saints or to ministers with a motive of buying God. There are those whose consciences can't live with their compromises, so they try to take some of the fruit of their compromise and tip the church. Beware. That does not show fruit of salvation. Men may say, well, that guy's a Christian. You beware of the heart. And I think Buchanan has got his finger on the pulse of this thing. 
practical antinomianism on the one hand, in which a one presumes on a false view of grace, and formalism on the other hand, in which he trusts his forms and his rituals. But there's no fear of God before his eyes. He's not living before the eye of God. He's living for man. Again, I say to you, brethren, if the thing that motivates you to clean up your act is the preacher, you're not being motivated by biblical religion. If your concern is when Daddy catches you, children, and not when God sees what you do, your heart is not showing that there's a love for God. It's a heartbreaking thing, isn't it, for a parent to come in unannounced to a child's presence, not intending to catch him doing anything, but intending to come in and say, how are things going, and find the child up to something that he knows he's not supposed to do. And just when he hears the footsteps coming around the door, you hear scurrying, and as you get into the room, you see the kid tidying up the thing that was not supposed to be out, or putting away the thing that was not supposed to be indulged in. A parent's heart breaks when he goes into that because he receives in that the child's whole motivation for doing what he does is the eye of the parent. On the other hand, you can parlay that because when you think that way about God and when you know that God's eye is always upon everything you're thinking and saying and doing and you fear God's displeasure more than your life itself, that'll help motivate you to deal with yourself in a righteous manner. I dear... I, I dare say that there may be some in this place who do what you do because the church requires it. And that's all. Well, brethren, we don't have rules in this church in order to save people. That if you don't keep the rules, per se, you get lost and go to hell. The rules in themselves being kept do not save anybody. Attendance at the stated meetings of the church is a requirement for membership here. If, you don't, if you're not prepared to do that, we understand, fine, but you can't be a member. But that is not there because we believe that if you skip, that in itself causes you not to be a Christian, or if you come because we require it, then God lets you into heaven. Those things are not in themselves the same thing. There are other reasons for those rules. But the point is that you can do all the rules for all the wrong reasons and can presume on your way that you're saved when the heart of the matter is missing. May God be thanked for some of your hearts that cannot do anything without questioning the motive. It's wearying, isn't it? Once you sometimes wish you could just get free of all that second guessing and all that examination. But brethren, don't throw that away. That's a wearing and laborious thing, but that's mortification. Check out your motive. Don't be quick to assume you're righteous because you did the expected thing. God looks at the heart. And I'm not the final judge of any man's heart. God is. I trust that the pastors of this church will not be the reason you're living and doing what you're doing, or anybody else in the church. Think in terms of the presence of God and live your life in a way that pleases Him and then that's evidence that your motives are righteous. But it is vital to remember, brethren, that this work of enablement which the Spirit provides in the saint is a work that's rooted in and glorying of the cross of Christ. All true sanctification comes from the cross. 
It is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all our sin. The Spirit glorifies Christ. The Spirit drives us to the cross. You see, what happens here, it's not some magical, impulsive sense of power that God the Spirit has put within me that now I feel this surge of energy by which I can kill sin. That's not the way that works. This isn't some supernaturally felt experience. Hey, I've got the Spirit, I'm enabled, I've got a little jolt of energy here, I'll go out and kill a sin. That's not the way this comes. Don't misread this. The way in which the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer enables him to mortify sin is primarily bound up in the things we've been preaching in Christ. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. So what the Spirit is doing in enabling me is all bound up in the work of Christ. As he illuminates me and makes the gospel more dear to my heart and seals and settles my heart in these matters, what happens? I find myself exercising gospel holiness, which involves a humbling. It's not the Holy Spirit saying, okay, here's a, here's a pill. You take this pill and you'll outrun the other guys in the hundred yard dash. This is no little drug shot that some guys get and some guys don't get. It is the Spirit driving me to confess the fact that I cannot make it. I cannot get rid of my sin. I cannot survive. Some of you thought you had gotten on the trick. You thought you found the formula and you began to breathe easily and you began to relax and somebody pulled a rug out from you. Some of us have lived a pattern of life that way. We work and we try and we make progress and all of a sudden we sin in a way we never thought possible. Some things we thought we'd rid ourselves for for a, for a lifetime come creeping back in after years sometimes. Sometimes slowly and sometimes out of a heart that we thought didn't have, was not capable, comes gushing filth and violence. What saint is there who could not describe sometimes in his dreams the kind of things that he would be ashamed ever to speak of that came out of his heart? Is there a mature saint anywhere who doesn't know something of the experience of at times having thoughts about brethren that are unworthy of a gospel? Sometimes thoughts of God. Not just the ones of unbelief which are in themselves bad enough or fearing our Father who loves us, but the ones of bitterness and anger about his providence. Dear brethren, we're capable of all sorts of rough things and sometimes it's a shock to our system to see ourselves saying things that we never thought anybody should say, and we certainly never expected ourselves to say them. God lets that happen. Why? Well, one of the reasons is that his motive here is to drive us to another, away from ourselves. His motive here is to get us to understand that the process of the mortification of sin is not by my getting some extra strength so that I can beat the devil and I can back up and say, hey, this is neat. I like these new boxing gloves. The motive is to give glory to God. When the victory is won, there should be no thought in the saint that somehow he found a secret formula that will always work in this way if he just does the first three steps himself. It's a humbling thing to be driven to the cross 
and to be forced to confess your sins and know there's not one thing you can do to make God listen to you or make God hear you or make God forgive you. You're yelling words out. You cannot scream loud enough to get them as far as heaven. You can't get them very much further than a little bit of the atmosphere above your head. How can you get to God with such things? And that's all you're equipped with. By the Spirit of God driving you to the cross, there is a propitiation for our sins, Jesus Christ the righteous, so that if we confess our, our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Cast yourself on another. Go to the cross. Stay at the cross. There's no magic work of independent power given us to kill our sins. It's the work of gospel holiness. The unbeliever can't do it. Only the one who is in Christ can even hope to mortify sin. But you do it by the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, continually exercising you toward the labor of confessing sin, hating sin, fighting against sin, all in the provision made by Christ. You know the armor. It's the breastplate of righteousness, but it's not my righteousness. It's the righteousness of another given me. It's the helmet of God's salvation. It's the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It's the Lord's girt about with the truth of God. It's the shield of faith, not in me, but in God, in Christ. All the equipment is provided by grace and is utilized in grace. And through that, sin is mortified. The simple effort of the message has been to encourage you who are weary and weak in the process of mortification not to grow weary in it, but to know that you are equipped and you're able. You will never completely mortify any sin thoroughly and eradicate it from your life. However, you will make great progress enough that you see evidence and others see evidence. You ought to be making that progress and where that progress is not seen, you must question your profession. Do not give up the fight. But fight in the armor of God, in the power of the Spirit, and take great encouragement that we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to mortify sin. Dear brethren, I guess one of the times when my heart is most tenderly affected is when I'm, in counseling with you, made aware of some of your own struggles with sin. Because I understand a whole lot of what, what that means. And I feel the weariness and the trembling and the grief. And if I could, I would deliver you with the snap of the finger. I would myself. But in God's gracious providence, he hasn't provided that means. Where I hurt as much as any other areas by seeing saints struggling against their own flesh, and disappointed over and over again. But let me encourage you by telling you that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And that Spirit, as we understand and cultivate the ministry of God's Spirit in the Gospel of Christ, we will see sin diminished and mortified increasingly and the graces of God cultivated in our lives. Let nobody here set any lower standard or goal for himself. Find courage to fight against sin. It is the purpose of God for us. Christ died 
that he may cleanse us from all unrighteousness and present us to himself without spot and without blemish. And he sent his Spirit to secure that end. Dear brethren, let us cooperate with the Holy Spirit in this, not being presumptuous, laying aside the thought that one more day of indulgence won't be too bad. After all, there have been years I've lived like this and God hadn't killed me yet. Dear brethren, I'm telling you this may be the last one. As I had to tell one of my children, he said, Dad, <coughs> I don't expect it. When I grow up, I'll ever be able to be a Christian. There's so much sin in me. And I said, Dear son, don't wait till you grow up. You don't have to wait till you grow up to be a Christian. Now is the time. Run to Christ now. Confess your sins now. You can't save yourself. Every saint in this room who has any brain at all knows that you can't save yourself. You can't save yourself as a saint from your sins. How much less you who have not come to Christ. Dear brethren, we're still at the foot of the cross. We're still utterly dependent on the provision of the cross. We will never change from that. We will never escape from that. But far from giving us an incentive to continue on in our sin or to indulge ourselves one more time, that is designed to, rat it, to get rid of all that stuff and to cause us to hate and to flee every sign of our iniquity from which Christ is saved. May God give us grace to exercise the co-laboring with the Spirit of God in the mortification of sin. And may God give help to those who are considering themselves able to do it themselves. May he disappoint you nobly so that you would bow to Christ and may God encourage you who've wondered if you'll ever make any progress by his spirit dwelling in you. May there be increasing fruits of righteousness in our lives together. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how we long that these things become real in our hearts how weak we are in making them so. Lord, we find within ourselves all manner of disappointment and failure, but are glad to confess this morning that we are not disappointed in your Son. And though our pride tries to keep us from Him and tries to motivate us to look inside ourselves for strength, we lay ourselves in your presence, O Lord, and we confess we're without strength. We need help and we need grace. And yet, O Lord, you have said in your word that those who are in Christ are able to quit themselves like men and to be strong in the Lord. And so in that sense, we're not without strength, but we're equipped. So help us, our Father, to increase the pressure upon our indwelling enemy. Lord, make real in our experience what these words represent. Make us to know growth in holiness in this place. Make us to know the dominion of the fruits of righteousness in this place. Make us to know what it means to be a people of love and rejoice and at peace and all the other evidences of the indwelling Savior. Our Father, we give you thanks that you've so equipped us and provided for us. 
May these things not be in vain, but may we as a church learn to rejoice in a Savior who has delivered us not only from the penalty and the guilt of sin, but from its power. Oh God, help us and translate our feeble effort in preaching to righteousness in the heart of your people and to salvation to sinners. We ask you to do these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.